So I just think language is so important, right? And so, you know, patients don't fail treatments. The treatments fail them. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right, we are nearing our finale for our second medical series with today, Dr. Abby Blystein. And we will have one more doc next week who I first learned of through their work with type 1 diabetes teenagers and eating disorders. So a little something to pique your interest so you'll join us again next week. And Dr. Blystein mentions that language is important. And so another trigger warning here, if this podcast is for professionals and some of the words here, just like last week, are hard for me to hear. It's a language that I don't use because I feel like some of the words are stigmatizing like overweight, obesity, medicine, weight management, or the promise that you're going to lose weight. It's just different how I operate. But this podcast isn't meant to be homogenous. You get to decide if it's for you. But I think you're going to enjoy, if you do tune in to this episode, I think you're going to enjoy Dr. Bleistein's message to us. I did. There are docs out there doing weight management and who have the heart to be with their client, help them with the best life without focusing on weight. So it sounds funny to say that a doctor who is in, quote, weight management allows the client to decide if weight will be part of the conversation or not listen in, you'll hear a little bit more about the heart that she brings to her practice. There's a little discussion here about the hemoglobin A1C, how it can be a marker for health, and how I share my weight neutral approach using the A1C as well. Also, the goal is to live your best life and thrive. And what's unique about Dr. Blystein is she has her feet squarely in both arenas, in private practice working in weight management and in treatment center with eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorders. So she has a really good grasp of what to look for and what I hope we can get out of this, especially any medical providers who are listening, is recognizing eating disorders and disordered eating and obesity medicine or anywhere you practice. In the show notes, we include some of Dr. Bleistein's seasonings, like how she recognizes shame, the screens that she uses, and how she stays curious with her clients, with her patients. After the recording, Dr. Bleistein realized that we never did talk about the intersection of bariatric surgery and eating disorders and weight management. So we'll just have to have her come back. And she sent a bonus over in the show notes, a link to Kid Power 
article on bullying because we know that kids have learned that the word fat, whether true or not, can be seen as the hardest hit. And handouts go way beyond weight. I mean, bullying itself goes way beyond weight. So I hope you check it out. And a comment from Dr. Mark, you have made a significant contribution. I love listening to them, your podcast episodes before work. If I know I have a tough day ahead of me to get in the right mindset. I always learn something and pick up many useful snippets. And a disclaimer in this podcast, we bring medical nutrition and therapy professionals who share passions with you to pique your interest in available modalities in the field of eating disorders. This show is intended to inform and educate. It's not a substitute for professional training and supervision required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, nor is it a substitute for medical, nutritional, or psychological advice from a professional or specialist. So please, if you enjoy this podcast, rate, review, and share. We're here today with Dr. Abby Blystein. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. Just to get things off pretty easy, some icebreakers. Mountains or beach? Oh, wow. Boy, oh boy. I think mountains. We've been getting a lot of mountains lately. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. And I just got back from the beach. So, and I do love the beach and I love water, but it's funny, but I think when you grow up around mountains, it's just, you expect to see them. Right. And so, and I happen to live, so where I live in Colorado is just right up as you're going up the hill, up the highway into, into the mountains. And there's an overpass. It's the first overpass after I get onto the highway that they purposefully didn't put the median in it. And so it frames basically the continental divide. And I have to say, even now, I mean, I've gone through it how many thousands of times. And every time I go through it, it's like, it's like this deep breath, you know, like a breath of it. It's just this amazing feeling. So I, I think I do love the beach, but I think mountains are it for me, for sure. So, That's cool. That's yeah. the best answer I've heard so far. Oh. <laughs> it's a pretty amazing, like, Oh yeah. What a, yeah, it sounds like <laughs> mindfulness built in in the drive. Yes, yeah. All right, what about this one? Breakfast or dinner? Oh, interesting. Breakfast. Breakfast is always special for me because I think during the week it's just like, you know, whatever. I'll have, you know, oh, there's hard-boiled eggs or whatever, but on the weekend I like to make a special breakfast with my family and I'll sit down and just linger and in the summer we'll go out on the deck and eat breakfast on the deck and just kind of sit and chat and enjoy, you know, just over a long period of time. Or if we go to the mountains, same thing. Like we'll just sort of linger on that weekend breakfast. So breakfast is kind of special. For me, I like that. Mm. And I know what you're saying too about the mountains. Like when you said sitting, going out on the deck and having breakfast, it, when you're in Colorado, there's always a mountain that you can orient yourself to. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. beach may not be as much. All right. Yes. No, that's true. I don't know directions when I'm anywhere else because the mountains are always west. So I know exactly you know, that's how I decide. But yes, if I'm somewhere else, I'm just lost. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Audiobook or paper book? Oh, you know, I do a lot of audiobook. So I, I love to read, but actually just because my timing, I do stuff 
on audio mostly now. Yeah. 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 And I realize we're talking in binary terms when we're asking you these icebreaker uh, questions yeah. and there can be mixed because you just came back from the beach. Yeah. So you must yeah. like it. But you, if yeah. we're asking you to choose one. Choose one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, can you, so this podcast is really for people who are in all levels of, of, practice within eating disorders care or even just thinking about it or getting ready to take a board exam or getting ready to start a new job. And we always like to kind of bring our guests to tell us a funny story or an embarrassing story about when they were new. Would you be willing to share? I would be willing to share. (laughs) But this one, yeah. So this is sort of, yeah, kind of an embarrassing story, but just starting out. And it's kind of the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question. But when we go to medical school, we have two years of kind of clinical science that we do where we maybe do a couple of patient interviews here and there, but not a lot of stuff. And then the second two years, you kind of go out on the wards and and start really doing patient care. And so my first, my very first rotation was an inpatient internal medicine rotation. So, And I was on call. And so we go in and there's a patient. And so they send me in to go do a complete, you know, medical history and physical on the patient. And in medicine, if people may recognize this, if they've ever been hospitalized, but everybody who walks in the door of a hospital ends up getting a rectal exam, which is terrible, but true. So I knew, you know, that's part of of doing my history and physical. So I got, you know, I'm being very careful and thorough and everything. And then I went to do the rectal exam and I was just, you know, this gentleman, and I don't even remember what he had anymore, what he was in for, but I went to do the rectal exam and I just really struggling and I just couldn't do it. And I told him all the things we learned to say, like, you know, just relax. It's fine. You know, bear down all this stuff. And I just could not do it. And it, and it wasn't working. And I thought, oh my goodness. And so I had to go out, you know, shame-faced and tell the, you know, the resident, you know, I, I can't get the rectal exam, you know, here's everything about the patient, but I, I just can't seem to do the rectal exam. And she's very concerned. Was there a mass? Do you think there's a mass? I said, no, there's not a mass. I just couldn't do it. And so we chatted back and forth and finally recognized that I didn't use the KY deli that we normally use to make the exam go, go smoothly. <laughs> Poor patient. So, so, oh my goodness. But I promise you, I've never done that again. <laughs> I bet. That's all it took was one time to learn that yes. one. Oh my goodness. He took the one for the day, team. Like, oh, shoot. <laughs> yes, that poor guy. It's just awful. <laughs> and he was such a trooper. He's like, no, I'm, I'm trying, you know, whatever. Yeah. That so generous, I but. really appreciate you sharing that because look, we all are, you know, no matter what level of seasoning, we all learn things from from our mistakes. And so it's just helps bring you to the human piece. So we got to meet you. Dr. Voss introduced me to you, which was really great because you were doing a talk during the training mentoring session towards certified eating disorder specialist on bariatric surgery and eating disorders. So it's it's a controversial topic. And also, I just really want you to tell us how did you get into that area? And what are your passions right now with it? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so that's interesting. So I actually, I'm board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics and have practiced primary care for about 15 years. And really got to a point where the 
practice of medicine, it was more and more, you know, looking at a computer and doing data entry and less and less about patient care and really that, you know, less and less time with my patients and such and got to a point where it just felt toxic, you know, was the best way to describe it. Just my values didn't match the values of the people that I was working with and it and it was working for at the time. And just really became a struggle. And so I reached out to a good friend of mine that I've actually known since high school, who is a family doc that specializes actually in obesity medicine, and just sat down with him and, you know, in tears, and I just don't know what to do. And I'm so unhappy. And so he kind of said, you know, come shadow me, come watch me for a day and just see what I do and see what you think. You know, so I did. And the first thing that he did is every time I walked out of a room, he kind of was saying, you know, I just spent 30 minutes with that patient. When was the last time you spent 30 minutes with a patient? Like, oh my goodness. Yeah. So really an impact there. But the the next thing that happened was he had a patient who, when she had started the program with him, her hemoglobin A1C was 12.6. So for those not familiar, that's just really out of control, blood sugars, really struggling. And she was back. And I think it might have been even just like her three month follow up visit. Her hemoglobin A1C was under seven. She was off, you know, a number of her medications and just feeling great. And I just thought, you know, this is magic. Like, this is amazing. And this is really the crux of medicine. And so, after, you know, so after that, I kind of went to the Obesity Medicine Association board review and spring conference. And it was kind of the first time I was excited about the science of medicine in a long time. You know, it was just nutrition and, you know, exercise physiology and metabolic disease and all these things that were just so interesting, some psychology and other stuff. So it was just really really exciting. And, and I brought it back to my primary care practice. And so really just started to use it in primary care. And ultimately I got board certified in obesity medicine and just, you know, decided that really I wanted to look at what, what would be, you know, if I were going to create a practice that had the best opportunity of helping people with sustainable lifestyle change, what would that look like? And so I created my practice, Healthful Life MD, really with that goal in mind. And so I see everyone for medical history and physical. The, I have a dietitian, a certified nutritionist in the program. I have two health psychologists, and one is a certified eating disorder specialist, and the other one specializes in chronic medical disease and also in sleep problems. I have a chef who specializes in culinary nutrition, and I also have a certified trainer. And so I sort of feel like supporting people in all of these different areas really is going to help them to reach their goals and really live their best life and thrive. So that's kind of my goal within that. I continued practicing a little bit of primary care as I started that. And, and right around the time of the pandemic, the practice that I was with actually was a pediatric practice. So I was doing general pediatrics in addition to my, my obesity medicine practice. It, you know, that basically the numbers dropped and she couldn't keep me on anymore. And so I kind of reached out to my community and, and looked for other stuff going on. And I met, or I, I connected with a physician, Jen McBride, 
who said, hey, we have, you know, we have openings here at the Eating Recovery Center. And so looking at that, and so I actually took that position as well. And so that is, I work as part of the medical team caring for patients with eating disorders who are in residential treatment. So adults and kids in those programs. And it's just been this incredible experience for me because it sort of has rounded out, or I feel like it's rounded out my practice. And I really sort of look at some of this stuff as almost a spectrum of disease, you know. So on the one hand, we have patients, you know, with obesity and struggling with that. And then we have patients with eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia and such. And, and, and it's interesting because the science, like a lot of the neurochemistry is almost inverse. And, you know, so it, it really has been a fascinating journey. But the other thing it did is it really helped me to recognize eating disorders and disordered eating in my own patients and my obesity medicine patients. And so to really be able to bring those skills back and support those patients with that it has really been, you know, eye-opening, but a great experience, you know, providing them, I think, better care. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just having you here with both, with feet in both, both areas. And again, I don't want to be too binary about it. Like it, you, you mentioned that it's the spectrum, like a, mm-hmm continuum. Mm -hmm. And some people have a problem with, with calling obesity, a disease state, Mm -hmm. but I'm just really glad to be talking to you because you can share with us what you've learned, what you're applying towards. Are you half time at each or? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I love that concept of a spectrum of disease. I've never heard anyone say it that way. But I think it's beautiful and it encapsulates so much because we were talking earlier about how sometimes we feel like we're on two different sides, the weight management, obesity, and then the eating disorder, anorexia. And really, we're all fighting towards the same thing. And really, they're mm-hmm. the same thing, you know? Yeah. And so that concept that there's this spectrum and that you can move across it and have different parts of it. And swing from one side to the other or stay in the middle and go all over is, is I think, really helpful just visually. So yeah, um, yeah. I like uh, that idea. Yeah. And I really think, it, you know, our goal is, you know, my goal for my patients is always the same, but I want them to live their best life and thrive. And, and those patients are not, right? And so, you know, so we're really, my goal is to help them and, and whatever that means to get them there, you know, but it, and it's really interesting as you kind of talk to patients and their experience. And for example, their experience of hunger or their experience while they're eating, you know, and, and I see patients with anorexia, the process of eating is what causes the anxiety and distress. So eating food causes distress. Whereas for a lot of my patients, you know, who carry extra weight and whether they have kind of disordered eating or even things like binge eating disorder, it's the, the hunger that causes distress. And it's that same level of anxiety and urgency and distress around it, but it's, you know, it's a different problem. And so it's really, really interesting to explore sort of the perception of hunger, you know, in, in people, I think it's very different. Everyone's perception of hunger and how that impacts them, how, you know, how their emotions and things react to it, it really varies. It's really individualized. And so I just think that has been an interesting observation as I've worked with with those sets of patients. And this, kind of like Beth was saying earlier, can 
be a controversial topic, mm-hmm. but you know, we should all be open to learning and who better than you, like you, your feet are on both sides, you know, yeah. and yeah. even like these few nuggets you've shared already are so helpful and valuable. And, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be so controversial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the controversy, the part that I have that I struggle with, with binge eating disorder is that it is painted as an obesity problem mm-hmm. where the first famous person who opened up about it because she was getting paid by a pharmaceutical company was tennis star, is it Monica Sellis, who clearly had binge eating disorder, but was very fit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about a spectrum, it's not necessarily about weight. It's not about weight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So some things, Dr. Bleistein, that you and I talked about were, were some language that you have learned to apply to all your patients that, that you found was a little damaging or not necessarily damaging, just something that you noticed as you're working across both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are a number of things that happen. And one is sort of, you know, this, the concept of obesity as a disease and Mm. sort of thinking that it's controversial, but one of the things when you recognize it as a disease, we start to talk about patients with obesity rather than obese patients. Yeah. And it really matters because, you know, a patient's weight is not their defining characteristic, right? This is not who they are. Um, it's something that they have. And so I think it's just so important to recognize as a patient with obesity in the same way that we'd say a patient with anorexia, right? I don't think it makes sense to say anorexic patient, bulimic patient, right? It's a patient who's struggling with these diseases and it, and it isn't their defining trait. It's not what makes them a person. So, you know, so I think that part of language is so important, you know, so patients with obesity, but the other thing, and it was so interesting, a friend of mine brought this up in the context of a relative of hers who was being treated for depression and really struggling and had gone through a number of different kinds of treatments. And they saw a doc and the doc said, well, you failed this treatment and you failed that, you know, you failed SSRIs and you failed ECT and whatever else. And, you know, she kind of called me and said, was this that doctor or is this something that doctors say? And I just, I mean, I was just floored because the reality is this is what we say. I mean, how awful is that? So in my training, and it just is one of those language things that honestly, I never thought about. It's just, oh, yes, the patient failed XYZ and we need to try something new or whatever. And it's like, oh my goodness. And in that context of a patient who's struggling with depression, to tell them that they failed yet again, right? They already are struggling with that internal sense of failure to say that they failed. What an awful thing, right? Really, the medications failed them, right? It didn't work. And and so to put that on them, and so I just think language is so important, right? And so, you know, patients don't fail treatments. The treatments fail them. And we have to figure out how we can help them, you know, find something that will work for them and be successful for them. I imagine in obesity work, similar to depression, they're probably coming to you feeling like they failed their entire life. by not having the right body shape or size that America wants them to have or the Mm -hmm. world wants them to have. And so they're already coming in with probably a lot of notions about 
self-worthiness and being a failure. So when we use that in the medical setting, I could see how that'd be extremely impactful. Yeah. Were you brought up yeah. that way too, Dr. Voss? Was that something that you were taught that the patient failed the treatment? Um, that language? Yes. And it was also in the generation where I was being taught to undo it too. So I was kind of in that mix. I was also in the generation where the the doctors that taught me would say, I have a diabetic coming, whereas the medical school would teach me to say, I have a patient with diabetes coming. So I got both sides, but um, there was, I think, tried to leave is a push to change that out of respect. And just like you said, it's not what defines them. No, Mm -hmm. no. And, and, you know, that hemoglobin A1C of 12.6, you can see that in people of a lower BMI. Oh, absolutely. So it's really, yeah, it's really, I just love the support, Dr. Blystein, that you give to your, your patients because you're looking at them as their whole yeah, helpful life. FMG, but I, I just, I want them to live their best life to really thrive, you know, and, and that looks different for different people, but I, I just think, you know, it's important to help them get there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you said just, you just said it, it looks different for different people. And so I'm just thinking from a medical perspective, how do you incorporate medicine into that, that goal and what kind of objective tools do you use to help them get to wherever it is they need to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of patients come to me and they'll ask me, you know, like what BMI should I be? You know, how much do I think I need to lose? How much will I lose? You know, what is my goal? And what I tell patients is, you know, you're going to be successful with this. You're going to lose weight, you know, every week, but you're also going to just feel better and better as the weeks go on. And at some point you're going to tell me I'm good this is good. This is sustainable. I feel good. I can do the things I want to do. Your numbers are going to look good. And then we know, right. And then we're done. So it, it not, isn't always a specific number. And now that's coming from the world of obesity medicine, obviously a patient who's struggling with anorexia, that'll look different. And we'll have to pay attention to that and catch that. Right. But I think in general, for the patients that I'm working with, that's, that's the real process is that, you know, they and so many patients will tell me, you know, I don't need to be a size five. Like, no, you don't. <laughs> right? mm. Like, that's not what you, you know, but what do you really want? And so I really talk to patients about what is your goal of going through this process? And weight is not a great goal because it's not a good motivator, you know, long term. And for most people, no matter what weight you're at, you kind of feel both like, you know, I'm too heavy. I wish I could lose a few pounds. And you also feel like, you know, this is fine. And I, you know, I can do what I want to do and it's okay. And that's true no matter what weight you're at. And so it's, you know, so looking at weight as, you know, weight as the goal or the number as a goal is not really helpful. But I tell people, you know, how is your life different when you're eating healthy? How is your life different, you know, when you're moving better, when you don't hurt as much, when you're feeling better, you know, how is your life going to be different as you make these changes? And those are the things that are going to help you long term. Right. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, how are you living? And, and so those are the kinds of goals that I talked about with patients. Yeah. Um, no preconceived numbers, mm-hmm. just like on the other end of the spectrum of yeah. like, we're looking at what's happening in your body and your life and weight is not a good motivator long-term. 
Yeah. 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 And is it sustainable, right? Is it sustainable? And that's the, that's the big piece that, Mm -hmm. you know, to play devil's advocate is weight inclusive care includes if I have a client who has type one or two diabetes and we're looking at hemoglobin A1C and their weight is high on the BMI, we can see improvements even without weight loss. Because mm-hmm. when, it, I mean, I guess you may be more successful with weight loss when you're saying you will lose weight when you're talking to them. I don't tend to focus on weight, but I do focus on the health measures, which is, okay, what is the goal of your diabetes is to get the hemoglobin A1C down. Let's not weigh you. But Mm -hmm. these are, again, kind of the binary, like I'm going to weigh, you're not, you're going to weigh, I'm not going to weigh them and we're going to measure outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even in my practice, I have some patients, especially if they're struggling with an eating disorder where I say, are we going to weigh today? And they say, no. And I say, okay, right. Like we don't have to weigh because what we're really focused on is the behavior and the lifestyle and the changes, right? How are you doing? Are you getting your nutrition in? You know, how was your exercise? Did you, you know, we were going to work on meditation this, this month and how did you do with that? And, you know, so those kinds of things, because once the behaviors kind of settle in and people have a routine that fits, you know, and they feel good. It, the other stuff doesn't really matter. Right. And, and certainly with the behavior, with the nutrition piece, the hemoglobin A1C gets better. Right. And so, you know, so we just sort of see those, those changes and as well. You mentioned that on your team, you have, you know, of course, dietitians and all of that, but that you also have, what did you say? A sleep specialist or yeah, so I have two psychologists that I use, you know, mostly for my patients. I do a behavioral assessment on every patient that comes in with, with the health psychologist, so with one of them. And so depending on what we find, I actually do eating disorder screening on my patients, part of the intake process. And so I sort of have an idea. And then as I'm talking to them as well and asking them about those things, I get an idea about whether or not that's a concern and then can kind of either, you know, have them see the the psychologist who specializes in chronic medical disease or sleep problems, or I'll have them see the psychologist who specializes in, you know, eating disorders and trauma and mood disorders and stuff. What screen do you use? I have everyone does the ACEs screen. I use the, oh gosh, what is it? The TFQ18 or whatever, you know, so the longer one Uh and then the binge eating screen. Okay. It's like 18 questions. So those Mm -hmm. are the three that I use. And then you sent those to me. Talk to people, you know, so that, yeah. So I have, I did send you just a PDF, uh, which includes also the BED7, but a bunch of different screenings, more specific for binge eating disorder, you know, or eating disorders around carrying extra weight. So what about, what about the kid? Well, I say kids because I'm an adolescent, but adults, Mm -hmm. teens, young adults, fill in the blank Mm -hmm. that maybe have been high and they've struggled throughout their whole life. And maybe they needed or did not need to actually lose weight. It doesn't really matter, but they were told by a professional, usually a doctor that they're overweight and they need to lose. And so they do all these things and they lose weight and they go down really rapidly. And then they come and you screen them and you, and they say, Oh, well, you're really unhealthy. You've got an eating disorder. And, and 
the population I'm thinking of is an atypical anorexia nervosa type picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they come in and they say, but I've done everything you've told me. And now you're telling me that I did it wrong. How do you talk to and, and kind of undo those thoughts about right and wrong and the binary and the the concept that where their weight is determines health instead mm-hmm. of health determines weight. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a pediatrician, I think that initial, how do you bring this up with patients is so important that we do have to be really, you know, careful about how we talk to patients about it and um, how we work with patients. And, and I certainly, you know, and just speaking to different groups and things like that, I see a whole range of practice, but, you know, weight bias is really, it's an issue and it's an issue, you know, with physicians and I think it comes across to patients. And so it can end up triggering issues depending on how we bring this up. And I, you know, I had a doc say to me, you know, I think all kids should be in organized sports, (laughs) team sports. And I said, oh my goodness, because I think of these patients who really had some negative, if not traumatic experiences, you know, trying to participate in organized sports. And that is not the best thing for everyone, right? You know, so so I think that as you approach a patient um, in pediatrics, I generally kind of, you know, look at the kind of look at the growth curve and look at how they're growing. And if it looks like things are changing or things are going in a direction that's worrisome for their health, I really just focus on kind of, you know, hey, I'm noticing that your curve is going like this instead of like this. Tell me a little bit about what's going on. Tell me about your nutrition. You know, what do you have for breakfast? And so really focus it, not specifically saying, you know, you're doing something wrong. You have to lose weight. You have to do this or that, but really getting very specific around, you know, tell me about your eating. What are you eating? You know, and and getting into the nitty gritty and And that's a much easier way because then you can just reframe things like, hey, what if we tried, you know, and so for kids, the first thing and the easiest thing is, you know, hey, let's, let's try to get away from some of these sugar sweetened beverages and just see how would that be? What would that be like for you? Could you cut back to, you know, to one a day instead of, you know, four or five a day or whatever, and just starting to change habits in a way that's, you know, so for kids, you don't want to do anything abrupt. And you can make suggestions over time, trying to change, you know, one or two habits over time and not specifically, you know, I don't usually tell people, you know, oh, you're obese or you're overweight or whatever. With kids, I really focus on nutrition. You know, how much are you moving? How much time are you spending on the computer? You know, are there things that you enjoy doing? Hey, mom and dad, could you take a walk in the evening with kids? Wouldn't that be a great way to spend time together? You know, really working on just changing certain behaviors over time. I love that you're staying curious. I think that that's what's so important is exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. is just, well, what would that be like for you? Not, you know, not saying that this change is even permanent, just Mm -hmm. consider what would that be? be like, you know, yeah. how would that affect you? Let's try it and find out. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just so powerful that you're, you're, like you said, rewarding it and directing them, but really you're still allowing them that autonomy and that choice and yeah. for them to have a buy-in and a say, I think that's just critical. Because yeah. those changes are hard, right? It's mm-hmm. hard to make those changes. And I think to that same end, recognizing success, right? So mm-hmm. if you said, Hey, let's cut back down, you know, let's cut back on soda. And then like, 
kids come back and it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm doing two a day instead of three a day. Like that's a huge win. You cut down by 30%. Holy cow. I mean, that's great. How was that? What was that like? What made it hard? You know, and then you can really start to dig in. What can we do as an alternative? You know, and really, you know, just really celebrate celebrate those changes in a positive direction and a healthy direction. I was actually thinking on the opposite end too, that if they weren't able to make a successful change, that they might be more comfortable bringing it up because it wasn't, Mm -hmm. you said I had to do this and now I failed. It was a, well, this is what it was like for me. It stunk. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it. I gave up after a day and then you can start there. Yeah. And like what made it hard? Right. You give them permission to Mm -hmm. not be successful right away. And yeah. Yeah. What role is that playing or whatever? And a lot of times there's reasons too. Like what happened? You know, well, you know, I had three different birthday parties in the time that, you know, this happened and, you know, or going out with friends and that's what we do and, you know, whatever it is. It just, usually there's something going on and you can kind of capture that and figure out, wow, that sounds hard. This wasn't good timing for this, was it? Right. And then we can kind of figure out how do we incorporate this in another way. And, you know, and like you were saying earlier, towards the beginning of your career, you didn't get a lot of face-to-face time with patients. And now you have know, X amount of time, I'm sure that makes such a significant difference. It's a huge difference, you know, just a huge difference in how much I can help people, but also it's just much more satisfying way to practice. (laughs) And if you could see, you may be able to hear in Dr. Bleistein's voice, the smile, but if you could see her, she just is like, this is where her happiness is, (laughs) where she can make a difference. How do you, how do you fight insurance then? So my practice, I don't take insurance anymore. So yeah, and that was a huge, difficult decision for me to make. And I do, you know, because I recognize the people who probably need my services most are the people who can afford it least. But I just feel after being in primary care for so many years, that the, the system is broken, it's unsustainable, and the reimbursement doesn't cover, doesn't cover the cost. And so I, so I just made that decision that I can't, you know, if I want to practice the way I want to practice and the way I feel helps people best, I can't, you know, I can't take insurance. So I don't take insurance. for my Yeah. That's such a, I think, ethical problem that you're not alone in that we all struggle with on how do we treat our patients the best Mm -hmm. and what we know is the best versus keeping our doors open to allow them to have access to that. So I understand that. Yeah. And my ultimate goal would be, you know, the more people I can support, um, the, the more opportunity I'll have to help people who can't afford it. So. Mm-hmm. That whole, are we going to weigh today? I've, I wrote that down because I love it. it, it and, <laughs> yeah. and it does actually speak to that. You don't have to report to insurance because some doctors would like to do a weight inclusive, like not focusing on a number kind of thing, but they're supposed to check every box. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just, I just wanted to say that out loud that you give them that option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we, and we don't have to do it. Yeah. So I think that's probably true because insurance won't look at patient declined. It just, you didn't get a weight on 95% of your patients, whatever it is there, you know, whatever the stars mark is probably higher than that for something like weight. Tell me more about why you say, are we going to get a weight today or not versus this patient we've decided we're just not going to weigh. And you kind of help them make a 
that decision versus letting them choose each time they come in? Yeah, you know, so for my patients where we have shifted, so sometimes we'll shift the focus from weight loss to behavior to eating disorders. And so if we're treating the eating disorder for obviously for binge eating disorder, it's a little bit different in terms of the weight versus somebody with anorexia. You know, so if our focus is and has been, you know, the eating disorder, I don't need to weigh. But if we start to shift back, then like I'm doing great and and I want to start to re-explore, you know, weight loss, then then I can just ask and I'll ask permission in that way. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we agree on and just decide we don't have to weigh. But also yeah. sometimes patients want to know and they don't weigh at home because, you know, for lots of reasons, it's very triggering, but they want to have that check-in. And so a lot of patients do want to check in on their weight because they might feel like, you know, whatever is going on with behaviors, whatever they just want to see. And so we just talk about it and make sure that it's safe for them and that sort of thing. And then for some patients, you know, the weight, the number is triggering. And so they want to weigh, but they don't want to know the result, Uh you know, and Uh so then I can follow and they don't need to know it. And then I just, you know, do it blindly and, and, you know, allow that as well. Yeah. And the, I also made a note about, it's so gentle, you know, your approach, your team, it's very warm and inviting. And when you mentioned the sugary beverages, that's been from obesity medicine, that's been such a sticking point as sugary beverages. And sometimes I just want to say, stop, (laughs) but, but the way that you set, because you can have sugary beverages, but the way you said it is, okay, if they're doing five or six a day, what would it be like to work our way to one time a day, you know, or whatever, but it's, it's that getting curious that Dr. Voss mentioned too, and not being prescriptive, Mm -hmm. but also how are you feeling in your body? If you, if you have less sugar circulating and, and Mm -hmm. teaching the science of what happens when you have so many sugary beverages, insulin comes out and then you plummet and then you get hungry again and, and you're all over the place. And it's so, I mean, it's just, it's such a terrible, you know, from a metabolic standpoint, it's awful, right? We're just to dump sugar like that in your body. It mm-hmm. really is metabolically mm-hmm. it's terrible. So medically it's like, oh my goodness, if I could help people get off of, of that. And the reality is they're made to make you crave them and they add enough salt and enough sugar that you want more and more and more of it. And and so it's not, you know, it's, it's not something that you have easy control over. And it really is so, so bad for, you know, for your body. So you know, so we do have to find that balance, but the recognition in my head is always, you know, like, oh my goodness, that's such a, you know, it's, it's terrible for you, right? Like it's really of the things that you could be doing it's pretty bad. And so without necessarily, I don't like to scare people or whatever, but I do say, you know, it's not, it's not great. What can we do to switch it? In the same way that someone drinking lots of alcohol, alcohol, you know, the new studies say there is no amount of alcohol that's healthy for us. So what does it look like to cut back, right? Mm-hmm. How does that look to cut back? And what role is that playing in your life? You yeah. know, how interesting that it's so hard to cut back. What's going on with that? Yeah, What's see, that's there. Like what role is it playing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Non-prescriptive, open-minded curiosity. 
And mm-hmm. I cannot believe how much time has already gone by. Yeah. So <laughs> Dr. Voss, if you would like, we'll, we'll, Abby, you want to, you can do well, a wrap up question. Oh yeah. I just had a quick wrap up comment and that was just, I think through this podcast, one thing that I noticed was that we hardly touched on medication or numbers or labs and this is the medical series. And yeah. so just pointing out that just because you're a medical doctor doesn't mean you cannot engage, doesn't mean you can't engage in these things. You can, you can engage mm-hmm. in health behavior change and do a lot of good for your patient without having to do all of the objective stuff. So I think doctors get scared that they might have to do a little bit of psychology or motivational interviewing. And so you just really provided a lot of light to those out there that says, yeah, you can do this. And it does make a difference. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we always kind of say, oh, there's the four pillars or whatever, but I do believe that, that this is such, you know, there's so much around, you know, the behaviors and other things the exposures and triggers and the, you know there's lots of different things that happen that that create the struggle for people and so I do like to engage people you know in all those aspects so you know and that being said I certainly there are some medications that have really made a big difference for patients and, and again it's that perception of hunger piece and I'm always amazed at you know, as you discuss that, that perception of hunger and when patients go on a medication that really is the right fit for them, where they're like, oh my gosh, I just, you know, what a relief to not have that sort of constant chatter, the intrusive food thoughts, I call them. So that experience of, you know, with sometimes for patients can be really life-changing as well. So, you know, so certainly that is part of it, but there's a whole big world that's more than just that, you know, so, so I think even the medication, those pieces together, Mm -hmm. the way you're talking about it is, is about how it affects that big world, not how does it affect your weight. And so just the whole concept that we are this multi-complex psychosocial dynamic person that deserves respect in all areas. It's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Abby, I know you have a a question. Sorry. Yeah. No, you're fine. Such wonderful things to learn from you. And if we can just sneak one more nugget, if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Yeah. You know, I, I really was not aware of how common it was, how prevalent it was, how to ask or talk about it. So, you know, my exposure and training and in primary care was fairly limited. And I think fairly limited because I didn't know to ask or didn't have time to ask or didn't ask the right questions, recognizing the shame associated with disordered eating and eating disorders, but just that it can't, you know, it's probably more prevalent than what we realize until we ask. You know, so that's really been eye-opening for me to just start to ask the questions and really see what's going on with patients to realize, you know, what's happening there, I think. Oh, I'm so grateful Mm -hmm. for you, for your time with us today, Dr. Blystein, in this medical series. We're kind of going there. We're going into the obesity world where many folks with eating disorders experience 
practitioners can't say the O word and that's how they'll describe it. And so it's, I think that you've helped debunk some of the myths around obesity medicine today. And I really, really appreciate your time with us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful talking with you. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.